The Taj Mahal, most of you are familiar with the Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal is an astonishingly beautiful tribute of a man's love towards his wife. It is a world heritage site. And it's probably the most recognizable mausoleum in the world, unquestionably. The Indian emperor Shah Jahal, Shah Jahan, I should say, built it for his beloved wife, Mumtaz Mahal, after she died in childbirth with their 14th child. The Taj is located in Agra, India, on the south bank of the Yamuna River. It took 20,000 workers 22 years to build the Taj Mahal, this beautiful monument. And it was completed in 1653, 1653. The white marble used in the construction was quarried at Makrana, the site Makrana, which was 200 miles away from where the mausoleum was built. And it took a thousand elephants and a countless number of oxen to move all of that white marble to Agra. What is not visible in most pictures, even in this one, which is a very good picture, but is not visible in most pictures is the floral design that was carved into inlaid marble by the stone cutters. They took precious stones and they wove into the facade vines and flowers all through the exterior of the facade and the interior of the facade. It is literally a piece of artwork. It is a beautiful jewelry case, we could say, the Taj Mahal. Spectacular piece of artwork, which is really communicating the lavish love that a man had for his wife. Now, we would be remiss in citing examples of lavish love without referencing the greatest display of love in history, which is recorded for us in one single verse in the text that we read here today. Many would say that the verse that we're looking at today, John 3.16, is the greatest verse in all of the Bible. It is the gospel in one sentence. These 25 words have been used to bring more people to salvation, it is estimated, than any other text of Scripture. The greatest theologian will never plumb its depth, and yet the youngest of children, children's church, preschool church, the youngest of children can grasp and understand its promises. This is one majestic sentence that expresses the essence of Christian belief. Let's break it down into the four phrases that we find in John 3.16. Let's reread it one more time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. First, I want you to see God's wonderful love encased in this phrase, for God so loved the world. The Bible tells us that the essence of God is love. Matter of fact, 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 says, God is love. 
Now, that's not a total description of God. It doesn't describe all of his characteristics. We know he's holy. We know he's merciful. We know he's omnipotent. Uh, but it is, it is the essence of God. God is love. He may create. He may judge. He may ordain. He may chastise. But the preeminent virtue of God is love. Matter of fact, the Bible says it this way. If we're going to really say it, what the Bible is saying, for God so loved the world. It's a great expanse of love. For God so loved the world. In other words, you can't wrap your arms around it. You can't comprehend it. His love is so vast. It defies description. It defies illustration. We can't really describe how great God's love is. The mind of man will never be able to fully grasp the love of God. Jeremiah says it this way, Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. In other words, it's a love that doesn't quit. It's a love that can't be measured. It's a love that will never be stopped. It is an everlasting love that goes into eternity. God's love is not limited to a, a few either. It's not limited to a select few or to one group of people like we tend to think Israel or some other group. But it, his gift is for the whole world. That's what this verse says. For God so loved the world. The word world here. It's not the word cosmos describing the physical planet. The word world here is not describing the world system as First John described. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. It's not talking about this world that Satan has corrupted, twisted. It's not talking about the corrupt worldly system. It's talking about the world of people, the world of men. God so loves the people of the world that he gave his son. Walter Wilson said, No one in all the world could possibly love everyone in the world. In fact, most people find it difficult to love their relatives. But God does. God loves everybody in the world. We find it hard to even love some of our family members. A sinner will go to hell unsaved, but he cannot go to hell unloved by God. Can I say that again? A sinner will go to hell because he's unsaved, but he will not go to hell because he's unloved by God. Even though the whole world will not believe and be saved, lost man still benefits from the love of God in many ways. We call that in theology common grace. There's saving grace that brings us into a relationship with Jesus Christ throughout eternity, but common grace is what all men experience Maybe it's good health. The Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That's common grace. The sun comes up. We have a family that loves us and takes care of us. That's common grace. So nobody can say, God doesn't love me. For God so loved the world. God's wonderful love. Look at number two. Jesus' sacrificial death. The next phrase says, he gave, he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. You've heard me say, and it's not original with me, you can give without loving, 
but you cannot love without giving. You can give without loving. You can put something in an offering plate. You can send it to tunnels to towers or, or whatever the case might be. You can send in your taxes. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Praise God for his unspeakable gift that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 9.15. We would say it today. Praise God for his indescribable gift. You can't describe the English lexicon, the English dictionary does not have the word sufficient to describe what he gave to us in giving us his son. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. So God knew when he created mankind that Adam and Eve would fall and all of us would inherit his sin nature and all of us would be hellbound. But even before he created the world, he decided that Jesus Christ would go to the cross as the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus' sacrificial death, he gave his only begotten Son, Some of us in this room have lost a child. We've lost a son. Some of us have lost children, maybe to a disease, maybe to an accident, maybe even in war. We often focus on the sufferings of Christ. Can you imagine the sufferings of the Father, though? When a parent loses a child, they suffer. God didn't really lose his son, but he saw him suffer. He saw him die. He stood at the windows of heaven, and he watched an angry mob spit on him, beat on him, torture him to death, his own son. He watched it in slow-mo taking place. All the while, The father had the power to stop this atrocity in a moment's notice. He could have called a legion of angels. They could have interrupted the torture. He could have called his son home to heaven. He could have stopped it in a moment's notice, but he did not. He had to give his son to pay for our sins. The just for the unjust, the righteous for the sinful. He didn't because it was the father's plan For Jesus, as it says in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5, 1, to become sin for us. He took our place. Our sins were placed on him. His righteousness was transferred to our account. He became sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God's holy son. Jesus' sacrificial death. He gave his only begotten son. By the way, this word begotten. Sometimes people struggle with that. Only begotten comes from the Greek word monogenes. Mono, you recognize, one. Genes is like generation. Monogenes, if you literally translate it, it means only born one. This is the only one of the Godhead that was born, the only born one. You can translate it, his one and only You can write that right above the word, his one and only, or his one-of-a-kind son. God only has one son, and he allowed him to be born into the human race and put on human flesh. Monogenes is one and only, the only born one, the one-of-a-kind son. 
I read about a child that was trying to recite this familiar verse, and he said, his only forgotten son. That's kind of true. In our world today, he's the forgotten son. Not the begotten son, the forgotten son. Most people in our country don't know this verse. Even though they see people at football games holding up John 3.16, they probably can't quote The majority of the people in our country have forgotten the son instead of realizing he is an only begotten son. Third, man's ideal response. Man's ideal response. That whosoever believes in him. That's the ideal response that God has for every man, woman, and child that's ever been born. That whosoever, anybody's name, believes in him. Whosoever literally does mean that. It means any who will believe. You can insert any name, any relative, any friend, any neighbor into that whosoever. It means you. So let me stop there for a moment. It means you. You may be here today by the invitation of a friend or drove by our church and said, someday I'm going to stop in there. You may be here today. Do you realize that Jesus died for you? And you can have eternal life by trusting in him. Whoever is comprehensive means Jews or Muslims, Chinese or Americans, Russians or Koreans, Red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. They really are. Civilized and heathen, Baptists and Mormons, atheists and agnostics, preachers and prostitutes. Whoever believes will be saved. You don't have to be a blue blood. You don't have to have some kind of an educational pedigree or religious pedigree. Whosoever believes is what he's saying. Whoever thirsts for the water of life, let him come, Revelation twenty two seventeen. Thirsty for eternal life, thirsty to know God, thirsty to have the answers in life, thirsty to have heaven, God says, let him come. Let him come. Believe, look at that word, that whosoever believes in him, Believe, that very statement, denies salvation by any other means but by faith. It doesn't say that whosoever works, whosoever is baptized, whosoever is religious, whosoever is moral, doesn't say any of those things. It says whosoever believes. In other words, it's by faith. You look at the context And we know the context of verse 16. It's the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a leader in Israel. He was a religious man. He was a moral man. He was a good man. He was an educated man. He had it all together. But he came to Christ and he asked, how can I be saved? He knew he wasn't saved, even though he had a a pedigree behind his name. And Jesus says, you got to believe You've got to be born again, which is another synonym for believing and obeying and trusting. Jesus says in John 3, 3, you must be born again. So the doors of heaven 
heaven open on the hinges of faith. If you're up there pushing against the doors of heaven, the only way they're going to swing open is by the hinges of faith. Not works. What or who are we to believe in? Amazingly, this verse covers all the bases. Whoever believes in him, referring to Jesus Christ, in him, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So salvation is found exclusively, exclusively in Christ Jesus. There is no other way to have salvation. There is no other way to get to heaven but through Jesus Christ. All roads don't lead to heaven. Only one road leads to heaven, and it runs right through Jesus Christ. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So I ask you, have you trusted in, or as this verse says, have you believed in, that means to rely upon, to put your life on the line. Have you relied upon Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you're adding anything to that, then you're not fully trusting in him. Number four, faith's enduring promise. Faith's enduring promise should not perish but have eternal life. The antediluvian world, the world before the flood, the antediluvian world perished, but Noah was saved, spared. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah perished, but Lot was saved and spared. The armies of Egypt perished, but Israel was saved and spared. The citizens of Jericho perished, but Rahab was saved and spared. God does that over and over and over again in history with people groups, and he's still doing it today. People are perishing. That's what this verse says. The world is perishing, but you can have eternal life. It's been true through the annals of time that a remnant believes and are saved, and the majority ignores and are lost or denies and are lost. There is a heaven to gain and a hell to be shunned, and it all pivots on this concept right here, belief in Jesus Christ, faith in what God has said. It all hinges on that. That's the pivot point in this verse. You may experience physical death, but you don't have to experience spiritual death. Eternal life is different from eternal existence. We must be reminded of that. If we're saved here today, we have eternal life, which is different from eternal existence. How do we describe that? Well, Satan, the demons, and all of the damned of mankind down through the ages have eternal existence, but they're lost. They're going to hell. They will live there forever. They have eternal existence, but they don't have eternal life. Eternal life speaks of the fullness of joy, the exuberance of being in Christ, 
the quality of knowing the Lord and living with him throughout eternity. So eternal life speaks of the fullness of being in God's presence. John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. So Jesus is saying, you may die physically, but you're going to have eternal life. You'll live with me forever. What he's telling us. What a concept. It's the most revolutionary thing I've ever heard of. And as a young college student, I grasped it. I wasn't really looking for it, but I heard it and I understood it. That salvation is not by what I do. It's by simply trusting in what Jesus has already done. It's so simple. I almost stumbled over it. But I believed. And I'm so thankful The difference between perishing and living and between condemnation and salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus could have come, and rightly so, into this world as judge and executioner and destroyed every sinner on the planet. But he didn't. Instead, he came as a Savior and died for us on the cross. The greatest display of love that this world has ever seen. Yeah, Shah Mahal did a beautiful work in carving out the Taj Mahal. It was a tremendous testimony to his love for his wife after she perished in childbirth. But it pales in comparison. It pales in comparison to the lavish display of love that God demonstrated in sending his son to die for us. The year was 1850 in Colchester, England. During a rare, blinding snowstorm that a teenager slipped into the back row of a Methodist chapel. There were only a handful of people there that day, partly because of the weather, partly because it was a small church. A very unskilled, untrained layman was filling the pulpit for their absentee sick preacher. His text was Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved, ye ends of the earth. The substitute preacher didn't have an outline or really even a message. He didn't really put any thoughts together about the text. He was unprepared. So he just kept repeating that statement. Look unto me and be saved, ye ends of the earth. He knew everybody in the chapel except for the teenager who slipped into the back. And he said to him, he simply kept repeating to him, look unto me and be saved, the Bible says. Young man, he said, you look miserable. Look unto Jesus. And he did. That was the day Charles Spurgeon trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior considered the prince of preachers, the greatest preacher of the modern era. He simply did what that layman who was unprepared said, look unto Jesus, and it clicked with Charles Spurgeon, the 16-year-old young man who got saved, and God used Spurgeon to become the greatest author in Christendom until just recently. And used him to start orphanages and Bible colleges 
and the greatest church in the Western Hemisphere because he believed. It's so simple that most people kind of slough it off. Can't be that simple. Can't be that easy to get eternal life. It is. Now, we understand that in the whole salvation story, there's repentance from sin and belief in Jesus. Yes. But the Bible says in just one verse, what we all know so well, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you? And if you do, let's share this good news of all that will listen. Let's pray together. Let me ask you, this was just a gospel message. I kind of wanted to end our series on great New Testament texts with one of the greatest verses, I think, in the Bible. And I think you would agree. But you may be here today, maybe not even as a guest, maybe you're even a regular here, and you haven't settled the matter of your own salvation. Oh, my plea to you would be don't leave the room, don't leave the building, don't leave the service without putting your faith in him. You could seek myself out, Pastor Zach, Pastor Brian, or probably any number of men and women here today, and we'll be glad to show you from the Scriptures how to settle this most important matter.